Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton, and I'm the managing editor of Providence. Today, we are speaking with Becky Munson. She is the department chair for government and public policy at the Helm School of Government at Liberty University. So, Becky, first off, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And Becky, you did your doctorate at, it was George Mason, correct? That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you did, your research was on human trafficking. So the first question to kind of get the conversation starting on this topic is like, how big of a problem is human trafficking? Yeah, I mean, you know, the numbers on human trafficking and you'll often hear trafficking kind of formally referred to as trafficking in persons. I mean, the numbers are absolutely staggering. Estimates really are kind of hard to come by sometimes, but the best numbers are, you know, peg things roughly at 25 million um, human trafficking victims. Now that includes victims of both um, sex and labor trafficking. A lot of people, when they think about human trafficking, they think just of the trafficking for sexual exploitation. But you know, it's really important to hit on how human trafficking really includes forced labor situations. That's really what brings those numbers up. And well over half of human trafficking victims, even up to around three quarters um, of of human trafficking in the world today, is actually forced labor. Um, And, you know, so much of this is actually in our global supply chain. Um, It's estimated now that we've got about $150 billion uh, in in profits annually coming from you know, forced labor in our in our supply chain. And Mark, you did a great piece. Was it last year? I think about um, companies like Zara, you know, who continue to use um, cotton in their clothing items that's um, you know uh, harvested by by Uyghur Muslims. Um, it's so critical that we shine a light on that because that's really where um, we haven't had enough focus over the last um, couple of decades. The other kind of interesting thing about this is because, you know, the human trafficking problem centers so much around forced labor, that that means that there are a lot of men who are trafficked. Um, it's kind of a common conception uh, that, you know, human trafficking affects women and children disproportionately. And certainly they are, um, you know, the, uh, disproportionately the, the, the victims of sexual exploitation. But when you bring in that forced labor element, Um, There are just millions and millions of men who are in uh, human trafficking situations around the world today as well. So um, it's the numbers are staggering. Um, And I think one other kind of misconception about trafficking that is important and useful to remember is um, human trafficking really centers around exploitation and not movement. Um, So the exploitation piece is really what makes a human trafficking situation a human trafficking situation and not actually the transportation of somebody um, across state borders. Situations of trafficking trafficking usually um, occur internally within a state's borders and they often, you know, involve a, a tremendous amount of psychological manipulation and coercion, so it can be really hard to identify. And you know, the, the point here really is, it's not what we think of, um, you know, what, what we see in the movies. It's it really is often more subtle, um, and this is part of the reason why trafficking continues to occur everywhere around the world. 
Um, and we have, um, you know, 25 million people in these situations today. You mentioned my article here. We will link to, we can link to that article and in a few other play or in Providence, you have written a couple of articles about human trafficking. So we'll link to those as well. And I had to double check my notes here. I think so in that piece, um, H&M got in trouble because they were talking about they weren't going to use cotton f or cotton that could be have uh, produced with forced labor out of Xinjiang, China. And Zara got in trouble because, you know, they had mentioned some forced labor issues on their website and they removed it to appease the Chinese government. Right. And so we'll link to that article as well. Um, but there, of course, I know since then, I can't remember specific companies, I think some have promoted the fact that they are using um, this cotton in order to sell to the Chinese market. They're usually companies that aren't selling as much in the U.S., if I remember those articles correctly, but I haven't checked those notes in a while. So I mentioned China. What other countries are there that are problematic for forced labor? Um, really, almost Every country in one way, shape or form has has something going on. You know, the the really problematic ones are where you have state sanctioned forced labor. Um, and there's obviously China has received a lot of a lot of um, scrutiny for this recently, which is really good news. But, um, you know, places in Russia even are reported to have some um, state sanctioned forced labor going on. Um, so it, you know. And, and so much of it, again, is subtle. Uh, it, it's very hard to kind of get the transparency um, from companies that's needed to really um, identify where in their supply chain something might be going awry. So one of the paths forward really is pushing companies to, be, uh, to, to provide clear documentation of where they're sourcing their products. That's absolutely key for ending this, this problem. So how has the U.S. historically combated human trafficking over the decades? So really, in the, we saw the, the beginning of an aggressive uh, U.S. approach to combating human trafficking internationally in the year 2001. That's when the U.S. State Department's Trafficking and Persons Office um, emerged. And since that time, the U.S. really has been kind of the de facto enforcer of widely agreed upon international anti-trafficking standards, standards that are found um, both in the U.S. Trafficking Victims Protection Act, as well as the U.N. Palermo Protocol. And the State Department invests a ton of energy into fighting trafficking, both in their diplomacy and through the use of their um, uh, the use of American sort of material power and leverage. The centerpiece of the State Department's uh, approach to combating human trafficking really is their annual trafficking and persons report. Um, that report is so critical because it grades or you know ranks every country in the world on a series of tiers. And if you get blacklisted in that report, if you fall to the bottom, uh, tier, you can become subject to certain types of U.S. sanctions, um, and that includes uh, the U.S. possibly withholding uh, its vote of support uh, in multilateral um, uh, lending contexts. That's a, a critical piece um, there of the, of the U.S. enforcement approach. Um, so 
it they do engage diplomatically. The State Department engages diplomatically, but it also has teeth that it um, that that goes along with its approach. The approach has been kind of remarkably impactful, um, and and you know no other set of actors is really out there enforcing international anti-trafficking standards the way the U.S. has committed to enforcing them. Um, you know, and a lot of it really does boil down to the fact that the U.S. actually holds enough um, material leverage and influence to spurn other countries to action. It is, you know, I've taken, I've spent a lot of time analyzing national uh, compliance records, you know, really scrutinizing fluctuations and changes in particular countries' um, anti-trafficking compliance records. And it really is true that even on an issue as morally reprehensible as as trafficking, governments themselves um, just really do not tend to work on the problem uh, unless something tangible is at stake. Um, Even though there's agreement that, you know, anti-trafficking norms are are a good thing and should be, um, you know, spread and, and countries should attempt to adhere um, to them. There's widespread agreement on that. Unfortunately, from what I have seen, you know, those, those norms are not enough to actually push a government to change and to do something. So national anti-trafficking records really do consistently show that other countries make anti-trafficking compliance decisions based primarily upon, you know, economics, power politics, and and domestic political priorities. Um, so that's a little bit of an overview of the um, of the U.S. approach to combating trafficking internationally, and uh, we've had about you know two decades of that approach now. the The really wonderful thing um, I think about about the U.S. approach um, is the by bipartisan nature of the fight. I mean, you've got you know, faith-based organizations of all stripes working with uh, secular NGOs and organizations and and international institutions. Um, we've got tremendous, well, traditionally we've had tre- tremendous across the aisle cooperation on this issue. Um, it's really a, a beautiful thing and something that we should be very careful to preserve. You know, we didn't talk about this earlier and uh, when we were talking about our outline of the discussion, but how does Europe compare to this? Are they following the U.S. or do they have their own, you know, system? Yeah, so there's been a few attempts um, by European states to um, construct, you know, a, a monitoring and grading system similar to what the State Department is doing. Actually, a lot of the data that that is used in those reports comes from the State Department's Trafficking in Persons Report. And this is something critical to hit on and kind of why the Trafficking Report um, rankings or or grades really are the gold standard for understanding a particular country's performance on anti-trafficking because the State Department um, uh, staff in the Trafficking Persons Office, I mean, they spend tremendous time and energy gathering data for each country each year on the particular improvements a country has made in, in areas maybe they've um, you know fallen backwards. That that data collection process is meticulous. It's very well organized. It's very systematic and it's produced um, you know uh, country reports um, where you have these detailed narratives, detailed explanations of exactly what a country has done over the past year. 
uh, and why you know it was issued a particular ranking. That data um, really is the gold standard. So um, you know even other approaches to construct um, kind of ranking and grading systems are largely predicated, or at least in part, um, on on the State Department's work. And in your manuscript, you have written about, or you've looked at three different case studies of the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, and Mexico. So, uh, you know, to kind of go through each of these countries, like what's the situation in the Dominican Republic when it comes to human trafficking? Yeah. So, uh, you know, going back to kind of one of my points earlier about how changes or fluctuations in in anti-trafficking um, compliance records you know, have have fluctuated in terms of correlated really with kind of the level and amount of of diplomacy and, and U.S. pressure on a particular country. That theme absolutely unites, um, you know, the DR's performance, the Dominican Republic's, Republic's performance, Nicaragua's performance, and Mexi- Mexico's performance um, over the past couple of decades. Um, you know, American influence really has played a central role in how much these countries have prioritized trafficking. So, um, this, in in both Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic, um, interestingly, both of those governments waited until they were at risk for U.S. sanctions before they uh, implemented anti-trafficking reforms and really started to work on their um, legislation to bring legislation in that would um, even permit for um for uh convictions and prosecutions and things like that. Um and the it, Nicaragua really was an interesting case uh because um they actually reacted so strongly to the threat of sanctions that they became Central America's sort of regional leader on anti-trafficking for several years. Now this was around the year um 2010, a few years after Ortega had come back into power. Um you know the the Nicaraguan Economy was not doing well, even though Ortega had promised otherwise during his campaigning. And, you know, we've got to remember Ortega had experience with U.S. sanctions during the Contra War. This really heightened his fear of how U.S. sanctions over trafficking might impact his own political power. Uh, To avoid, you know, the sanctions, Ortega quickly implemented really robust, uh, a really robust law enforcement response to get Nicaragua's conviction rates up. Ortega figured out that conviction rates were a, sort of a critical marker that he needed to perform on and in order to evade U.S. sanctions, and he performed on it. Um, now, obviously, the situation in Nicaragua is different today um, because of what you know, Ortega is doing there. And, and the Dominican Republic has also um, you know, fallen backwards a little bit. Um, but you know both of those cases really illustrate how you know the central role of us pressure because when us pressure wanes the trafficking performances in in most most places performance on anti-trafficking will wane it certainly does not hold true everywhere but it holds true i would say in most uh, places around the world um and one other thing i think is interesting about um Nicaragua, you know, a really similar pattern was actually present present in Belarus in uh, in the late 2000s. You had an authoritarian leader there who also, just like Ortega, worked very hard to get conviction rates up 
and became a, actually a regional leader on anti-trafficking, at least for a period of time. Both Ortega and Lukashenko used their centralized police forces to institute strong law enforcement responses to the trafficking problem at, with the goal of evading U.S. sanctions. Um, now, with Mexico, uh, Mexico is another case that I've spent time looking at. Um, the Ameri Americans there kind of politely coerced Mexico into action. Uh, we saw a high point there in their fight against anti-trafficking in the late 2000s. And at that time, you know, Mexico was really permitting tremendous um, U.S. influence uh, and, and foreign influence in general in the creation of its national anti-trafficking legislation. Um, and Mexico gave ICE enormous liberty to come in and execute a range of anti-trafficking law enforcement initiatives and programs sort of on their behalf. The allowances actually angered certain people in Mexican human rights groups who really adamantly disagreed with the level of American influence in uh, Mexican domestic politics. But the Mexican government allowed for these openings in order to maintain good bilateral relations with the U.S. and especially um, certain economic and security partnerships that were on the table at the time. So shifts in Mexico's anti-trafficking performance were more gradual and less dramatic than changes in Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic. But still, um, you know, if you take a close look at Mexico's national record, you can see two distinct periods of improved action. The first um, um, ran really up until Mexico passed its, its, its first national legislation in 2007. And then the second phase ran from 2007 until roughly 2012, during which Mexico tried and ultimately kind of failed to implement its new legislation. But, you know, what's so fascinating about Mexico is, you know, you have a state that's hampered by really serious institutional challenges and, and a lot of corruption. And, you know, it's still made notable strides on, on a very complicated and challenging human rights issue. Um, and a lot of that is because of direct um, U.S. influence and engagement. Um, still, though, you know, the American approach has certainly had its limits. Um, in Mexico, for example, you know, once the U.S. began demanding um, that Mexico do more to hold corrupt officials accountable, you know, officials who were complicit in tra trafficking operations, cooperation quickly, um, you know, waned. Um, and Mexico sort of actually now plateaued on anti-trafficking over the last 10 years. And I would say that's really best explained that that plateau now is kind of best explained by an American hesitancy to really um, criticize, further criticize or, or sanction or uh, threaten to sanction Mexico over this. Um, and, and there's just now a, a whole lot less uh, openness to cooperation, especially when it comes to law enforcement. So I, I also think there's an interesting parallel. You know, we've got uh, some parallels between how Nicaragua responded and how Belarus responded to, to U.S. pressure. And there's also an interesting parallel between what happened in Mexico and Russia's uh, response in, uh, to, to U.S. pressure on anti-trafficking in the early 2000s. Um, interestingly enough, Russia also permitted for a lot of direct U.S. influence in the creation and passage of its national legislation. Um, 
So, and that was in the early 2000s. The story is very different now with Russia today. But, you know, all of this really illustrates how effective the State Department's approach can be. And, um, you know, those are some of the highlights um, over the last 20 years. So what measures are the best way to combat human trafficking? This is a really uh, great question. And this is kind of where I break from the pack a little bit. You know, it's easy to um, come to the conclusion that uh, nonprofit um, and transnational advocacy uh, networks and organizations are sort of the most important set of actors when it comes to fighting trafficking. And they really do have a critical role to play, especially when it comes to caring for victims and offering them um, assistance, helping them recover and build new lives. Those are, are tasks that, that governments are often, at least in my view, not well equipped to perform. Um, and uh, certain organizations, you've got, you know, for example, the International Justice Mission, which is a faith-based organization. I mean, they do tremendous work to help countries build the institutional capacity that they need to carry out an effective trafficking investigation, prosecution, you know, from start to finish. But really, I see the human trafficking problem as a political will problem. So many governments say that they're motivated to meet international standards, but they don't actually follow through by passing the appropriate legislation, and they don't really work that hard with their law enforcement agencies to get their conviction rates up. And getting those conviction rates up is one of the key ways that you start to send a signal to traffickers that you know their their reign of terror is over. You've got to send a message to to the traffickers that there really are consequences, and that the government, their government, really is serious about cracking down. This is the fastest way to end the problem, and I'm really most interested in the route that leads to the most immediate relief and justice for the victim. So from my intense study of national compliance records, what I've seen is it usually takes a powerful actor like the United States, you know, using some type of materialistic incentive or, or penalty or consequence and holding that over uh, uh, political elites um, to get them to take action on, on trafficking, to get the right legislation in place, to push their law enforcement agencies to do more when it comes to investigations and prosecutions. In the end, countries tend to mobilize really only when something is tan something tangible is at stake, um, and usually not because it's the right thing to do. And this is where the State Department really holds the advantage. Um, if you look at anti-trafficking, uh, national anti-trafficking compliance records, what you see is that time and time again, countries improve when the U.S. tells them to improve. And this is not because all governments are apathetic or because anti-trafficking um, advocacy groups are failing, but it's because the fight against trafficking really boils down to a political will problem. Elites usually need materialistic incentives and penalties to get them to act, and the U.S. is the player armed with these tools. You know, the key is that the U.S. has to maintain credibility um, uh, of its threats to sanction poor performers. Um, in, um, in, in the past, countries have started to learn that it's, it's not that hard to get a waiver for the sanctions. And the U.S. has increasingly been a little bit shy about following through on sanctioning 
core performers. We've we've got to actually follow through on that threat to maintain the potency of the State Department's coercive diplomacy approach as a whole. So you mentioned the conviction rate is kind of the measure that you know, judges success. So is there a temptation for some of these countries to get convictions that may not be, you know, a conviction for conviction's sake and not a conviction for the person who actually did the crime, if that makes sense? Or is there a risk of innocence getting prosecuted? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, conviction rates have received a a lot of attention and, and, you know, Countries have figured out that they matter a lot in how a, how the State Department grades them. They are not the only marker, um, so I want to point that out. They they are not the only thing that you know impacts how a country is graded. But yeah, I think especially in places like Nicaragua, um, you know, there's a tendency just to get that number up as high as possible, and and there are questions about you know the integrity of some of those investigations and prosecutions. I think that's a, a very good question and a and an important point to point out. And uh, I believe was it last year or maybe two years ago you wrote about or you talked about the Trump administration's approach to human trafficking. So could you analyze that? and assess how the Biden administration has been doing. Certainly, yeah. So to understand what Trump did well, I think you sort of unfortunately have to consider what Obama did not do well. Um, in 2015, um, the this, this State Department's Trafficking and Persons Report, you know, this, this centerpiece of the State Department's approach to combating trafficking, contained several rankings, several country grades that were clearly politicized. And um, uh, countries included uh, Malaysia, Cuba, China, and and the the thought is there that you know Obama was trying to uh, it, it was related to the PP, the sorry the TPP the Trans Pacific Partnership that's why those rankings were politicized essentially those countries and others were ranked too highly they were given grades that they did not deserve and the report in my view has kind of in some senses never been the same so. One thing the Trump administration did well was they did start to bring more credibility back to those grades. Downgrading China was critical. Obama had refused to put China on the blacklist where it belongs, but Trump immediately put China there. So, um, you know, these types of of um, things help the trafficking report grades to recover their credibility, and it really is critical that we maintain the credibility of those grades. Um, and um, you know, uh, Biden, I don't know if you, would you want me to go ahead and start talking about? Yeah. One thing I would add is for listeners who don't know, you mentioned the TPP, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership that yes. uh, Trump pulled out of, but the countries that had already, so it was going to be a trade deal in Asia Pacific that was designed to counter China to have like a mix of soft and hard power there that the Obama administration was advocating for. The Trump administration pulled out of it and instead kind of focused on redoing NAFTA. So for those who aren't familiar with TBP, that's kind of some of the background on that. But uh, so the Biden administration, how, how are they doing? Yeah, well, on paper, they're very committed to human rights. Um, and um, But I, I do think to preface this a little bit, I do think whenever you talk uh, about 
human rights issues with Biden, it is sort of impossible to forget about what happened in Afghanistan. Um, I do think, though, that Biden has a capacity to work um, in a bipartisan fashion on anti-trafficking, and this is, you know, this is critical for success. Um, you know, it's really critical that we maintain bipartisan cooperation here um, because that is central to, um, you know, keeping the focus on bringing immediate relief and justice to today's victims. You know, one thing that uh, I noticed back in January of this year, Biden, what he released an updated national action plan to combat human trafficking. And he added in uh, a bit of a focus on, on you know, gender and racial equality and workers' rights. In, in my view, Biden is starting to blend in some issues and, and questions that are really political questions and issues um, issues that you know we should be handling separately from a core human rights issue like like human trafficking. It's really important that we maintain separation between broader uh, political questions and core human rights issues like trafficking because that is central to maintaining um, and fostering the the beautiful bipartisan uh, cooperation that has traditionally characterized the U.S. fight against trafficking um, and the U.S. attempts to help other countries adhere to international anti-trafficking standards. Um, uh, Biden certainly has enough experience, you know, in politics to make sure that the issue of trafficking remains, you know, one of the precious few issues where we have really great cooperation across the aisle. So I really hope he prioritizes uh, the preservation of that. You know, no matter who is in office uh, when it comes to an issue as egregious as trafficking, the approach to fighting it really should be one that unifies and minimizes the potential for arguments that belong over in the realm of politics. This is critical, uh, again, for, for keeping the focus on immediate relief and injustice for victims. Um, and I, I do also want to point out that, you know, whenever you talk about a particular administration's um, success on trafficking or how they've, uh, how they've um, helped or, or harmed um, um, the, the fight against it, it's really important to, to always point out that the staff and leadership in the State Department's actual trafficking office, um, you know, they usually make the right recommendations when it comes to particular rankings. And they usually know when a um, particular ranking has been politicized for reasons outside of their control. And it usually is, you know, any politicization that occurs usually is outside the control of the, um, of the people who, who work very hard in that office to put together this terrific report with, uh, as I spoke about earlier, with data that is really unmatched. So, um, you know, they, in my view, really are kind of some of the unsung heroes in all of this. Well, Becky, thank you so much for joining us on the Profcast today to talk about these issues. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 